one of the things that uh, we've got used to when we come to church is when the preacher stands up, he's going to preach a message. And he is in a minute. But what I felt this morning, we need to do is take some time to spend in the Word. So we're going to just take some time to go back to the story. The greatest story that's ever been told. The account of the crucifixion. And it's through the crucifixion that millions and millions of lives have been changed. You can follow with me. The scriptures will be there, but we're going to take time just to be in the Word this morning. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus and secretly kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. And while he was in Bethany, which is not too far from Jerusalem, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, obviously a man who had been healed from leprosy. A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, and she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. I did some research this week on this, this perfume that's called nard, or you may read it elsewhere, it's called spikenard. It comes from the Himalayas. It is grown in India. It's the root of a plant that you find in the Himalayas. And they will extract this perfume from the root of that plant. And somehow it had made its way to Palestine and to, to Jerusalem. And when people speak about this stuff called spikenard, it was known as the gold standard of perfume in its day. And for a woman like this to break that, it was probably about 500 mils, for her to break that, that jar, that container, and pour it over Jesus, she would have been giving and pouring over his head probably her most precious possession. Some say it could have been part of her dowry. We know the Bible tells us it was worth a whole year's wages. But Jesus had so impacted her life that her most precious possession is the thing that she brings and she pours it over him. Verse 4 says, Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor and they rebuked her harshly. And I will tell you whose voice was the loudest voice rebuking her. It was the voice of Judas, the betrayer. You see, Judas was the treasurer. He was the guy that carried the money bag. And the Bible tells us that he used to help himself to the money in the money bag. So guess who would have been infuriated and indignant that this 
A year's worth of money was being poured over Jesus. Judas didn't have any pure motives. He wanted more money to dip his hand into. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you. And you can help them any time you want. But you'll not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And this seems to be the turning point for Judas. Almost this catalyst moment for him. Because the Bible says then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the, tw the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this. And they promised him money. And so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, this was Jewish Passover. Many of you have heard, it, heard of it. When it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And so he sent two of his disciples telling them, Go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Men never carried a jar of water in those days. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house. He enters. The teacher asks, Where is my guest room that I may eat Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. And so the disciples left and, and they went into the city and found the things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared for the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It's one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it's written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. And gave it to his disciples saying, take, this is my body. You need to remember, that was always a reminder of Passover that had taken place many years before. And Jesus now brings new meaning to that. This is my body. And then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, in, in, in those days when you were celebrating Passover, not like we do today, you would drink four cups. And each of those cups had significance. You can find them in Exodus chapter 6. The first cup was the cup of sanctification where God says, I will set you free from your slavery. 
The second cup was the cup of blessing, where God says, I will rescue you. The third cup was the, th- the cup of thanksgiving. This is the cup that he's talking about. This is the cup that Jesus is when he says, this is now the new covenant in my blood. It's the third cup of Passover. And then you remember he said, we won't, I won't drink from the vine until one day when we are together again in glory. And you see, Jesus at that Passover meal, he stops with the third cup. He doesn't drink the fourth cup because he said that the fourth cup was the cup of consummation. It's the day when you will be my people and I will be your God. And he said, that won't happen yet. Something very powerful is happening as they share that meal together. And they went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. And going a little further, he fell to the ground, and he he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, Father, not what I will, but what you will. And then he returned to his disciples. And he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And they'd been awake all night. And they were tired and sleepy. And once more he went away and he prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he found them sleeping Because their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And they took Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests... The elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed them at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. And the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were there looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. And then some stood up. And they gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands. And in three days build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. And then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. And he gave no answer. And again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why 
do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. And then some began to spit at him. And they blindfolded him. And they struck him with their fists. And they said, prophesy. And the gods took him. And they beat him. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. And so they bound Jesus. They led him away and they handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. And the chief priests accused him of many things. So again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom of the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and, and they asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did, and that was to release a prisoner. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Then what shall I do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Jesus released Barabbas to them. And he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see which, what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and, and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and, and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. The same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who, those crucified with him, also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land. 
until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, labak samaktani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. Then with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple, that curtain that separated the holy of holies from the holy place, was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. We had the privilege of being able to be in Jerusalem last month through somebody's kindness and generosity. And many of you will know that Jerusalem is one of the religious capitals of the world. And while I was in Jerusalem, there were two things that had and made a profound impact on me. And the first one is this, how deeply religious people are. People have built shrines, temples, and cathedrals. And some of them, you know, are beautiful. You've all heard of, of what's happened in Paris with Notre Dame catching on fire. Now people are rushing to try and repair this 850-year-old building. People have, they've got sacred sites, they've got holy objects, they've got rituals and rules to try and help them connect with God. I remember going into a, a, a church one afternoon and, and, and watching with absolute amazement as people were kneeling with their hands on, on the slab of stone which was reputed to be the place where the body of Jesus lay. And as people were doing this, you could see it was having a huge spiritual impact on them. It was something just wonderful for them. But the other thing that I noticed is how easily religion can replace a genuine relationship with God without people even noticing it. And you know, it's only when we go back to the crucifixion of Jesus that we are reminded we do not need a special building. We don't need a sacred site. We do not have, need any religious objects to have a relationship with God. When Jesus died on the cross, He did away with it. He put something new in its place. You know, and about you and how you grew up, that I was really privileged in our home to have parents who believed that it was important for me as their child to go to Sunday school. I, I'm not sure if this has left a mark in my mind, but I still remember being very unhappy about the first day that I had to go to Sunday school. And saying, Ma, I don't want to go there. She said, you're going. And then as I grew a little bit older, 
My folks made sure that I, I, I got involved in the youth work and the youth ministry of the church. And then as I grew a bit older, made sure that I went to church every single Sunday of my life. But sadly, what this did for me over time was, was leave me with the distinct impression that being a Christian revolved around these kinds of activities rather than having a relationship with God. And you know, in Jesus' day, people had come to believe that the way to come to God was through a religious system of laws and rules that they were to obey. Through animal sacrifices that would be offered to God. To holy places where they would go to worship. And so when Jesus begins to teach people, He tells them, I've come to put an end to all of that. And you know what they did to him? They crucified him for that. And you see, I've learned, as many of you have, how powerfully religious beliefs can entrench themselves in people's lives. You remember in Mark chapter 14, we read in verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus. So they could put him to death. But you know what Jesus taught people? And this is a scripture, by the way, many of you are familiar with. But I want to put it in its proper context this morning. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. Do you remember that scripture? It says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And so many of us have used that scripture when I'm going through a tough time and when things are really difficult. Jesus is saying, come to me and I'll give you rest. Actually, that's not what he meant through that. I think that's part of it. What he was actually saying was this. You are all carrying the heavy religious burden that people have put on your shoulders. Come to me, rather. All you who are weary of religion and burden from religion, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That was radical teaching in those days. Worthy of crucifixion. But the crucifixion also reminds us that a relationship with God is always through what Jesus has done and what Jesus has accomplished. Do you remember as we were reading before the crucifixion, Jesus eats the Passover meal with his disciples where they would remember a few things. They would remember the bitterness of 400 years of slavery. That's why they had bitter herbs as part of that meal. And it would remind them of the, the bitterness of slavery for 400 years as a nation... In, in Egypt. But it was also a reminder of God's supernatural intervention. When God intervened so that His people could be free. And you remember that the tenth plague that came to them or the, the tenth intervention of God was, was the time where they were to put the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts and the firstborn of every household would die except for those who had the blood on the door, doorposts. And every year, Jews from all over the world come to Jerusalem still to this day to celebrate Passover. But this time, as Jesus is celebrating Passover with his disciples, 
He says to them, from now onwards, the unleavened bread. Let me get a piece of this because that's unleavened bread. Not our big fat loaf that we have that makes you fat. This is the kind of stuff. And he breaks the, the bread, the unleavened bread. And he says to them, no longer is this to remind you of what is past, but I want it to remind you of my body which is broken for you. Afterwards, he, he takes that third cup that I was describing to you earlier on, and he says, this is to be a reminder to you of a new covenant that's coming into effect. Remember what Mark says in his gospel as he recounts this. Friends, the Passover meal for them from that moment onwards was to be a reminder that God was replacing an old covenant with something new. This is what the new covenant is. Let me read it to you. It's in the Old Testament. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds, write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Do you know that when we have communion this morning, when we break bread this morning, as we call it, we are also reminding ourselves that a relationship with God is based on what Jesus has done. Friends, it doesn't need a ritual, a building, or a special place. It's because of Jesus that we can have a relationship with God. Isaiah says, surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. My friends, that is good news. You know for me what the best part of the crucifixion story is? It's the way that people's lives are transformed when they turn to Jesus. It's, it's the thing that amazes me over and over again. What happens when, when people put their faith in what Jesus has done from them? And, and this differs from person to person, this transformation that takes place. It's not the same for all of us. But, but, but there's one thing that, I, that I've become aware of. The transformation that takes place in our lives can always be traced back to the fact that somebody has grasped the meaning of the crucifixion and that they've put their faith in what Jesus has done. That's the story of the Bible, that God came to save us. God came to transform lives. God came so that we could have a relationship with Him. You see it with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. You see it in the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Friends, when we understand, and I want to use two words here this morning, understand what happened at the crucifixion. And when we put our faith in Jesus and believe that 
This is the way to have a relationship with God. Something happens in us that I want to talk about for a minute. The Bible says, and Jesus speaks about it, He says, you are born of the Spirit. Or a term you may have heard, you, you are born again. What He was meaning by that is that there's a spiritual awakening that takes place when we understand and put our faith. In Jesus. Our awareness of God changes. A strong sensitivity to sin starts to become evident. A desire to please God begins to surface. There's a willingness to serve God and a love for others that goes to new heights. Do you know that's why, why people behave differently, do things differently? Why they have a a change of heart, they're softer and more gentle and willing to turn away from sin. It's because of what God has done in their lives. I was listening to uh, a preacher this week and just kind of preparing my heart for, for today and for this weekend. And he said something that's really stuck with me and I'm hoping it'll stick with you too. If I told you that on my way here this morning, I had a flat wheel in my car, and as I was busy changing the wheel, I stepped out into the traffic, and an oncoming car hit me. Would you expect me to look the same as I do now? If I said to you this morning, do you know, guys, I got hit by a car this morning, Traveling at 60 k's an hour, you said to me, you're talking absolute rubbish. Look at you. There's nothing wrong with you. But isn't that the point? If you get hit by a car, it does, it dents you a little bit. It affects you, it impacts you. Friends, I want to say to you, when you've met Jesus, the Savior of the world, you cannot be the same. Friends, I, I really want to say this today. Christianity isn't me trying to be good. Christianity is God changing me so that I become good. Let me read this to you. John makes a profound statement in his letter. 1 John chapter 2. Listen to this. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. You know, there are many people that say, I'm a Christian. But when you look at the life, their lifestyle, you know they're a flat-out liar. Because this is what John goes on to say, if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Can I explain this verse to you? It's not saying I try to live the way that Jesus lived. That makes me a Christian. What it's saying is, you've been born of the Spirit, transformed by the power of God, and you walk like Jesus walked and live like Jesus lived because you're a changed human being. That's the gospel. For the sake of us here this morning, I want to say that a Christian 
is not just a good person who does good things. And on the other side of that coin, because somebody's a good person who does good things, does not mean they are a Christian. There are lots of good people in the world. A Christian, if I may, is somebody who is a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what makes them a Christian. Who believe that Jesus died for their sins. Somebody who's been born of the Holy Spirit. Who obeys Jesus. Who wants to please Jesus. Who loves Jesus. Who wants to bring glory to Jesus. Friends, that's Christianity. The other stuff might be wonderful, and I'm not for a second, uh, I am wanting to decry good people in the world, but let's make sure we know the difference. People who are Christians have one goal in their life. It's to live like He lived, to love Him and to please Him and bring glory to Him. Friends, I want to say to you all this morning, down with religion. Religion has never accomplished anything good. When I was in Jerusalem, I saw how religion has divided people very successfully. One thing I discover about the cross and the crucifixion, how it brings people together how it heals people of their brokenness, how it forgives them of their sin, how it gives them a new perspective on life, how it gives them a new hope and a new willingness and a new desire to recognize they are a new creation for friends at the cross when He was crucified. He paid the price so that we could be free. I share that with you this morning. I just, I just have a sense. And I was reading, you can read it on your own, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Where Paul gets like quite angry. As he's writing to the Corinthian church. And he says, there are some that have come amongst you as an angel of light. And it's really the enemy in disguise. And I'll tell you what his best disguise is. It's called religion. It's called religion. There's only one thing that we can celebrate this morning. It's what He's done. It's the way that He has made. It's the transforming power that He has brought about into our lives. And friends, let's today praise God for the cross. Amen. So God, we praise you for the cross. Lord, we are not prepared to be quiet about the cross. We are wanting to say, praise you, Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you that Jesus actually, as a man, as a human being became sin for us. 
and took upon him the punishment, the wrath of God. And he paid the price. God, so that we could be free. And Lord, there's one thing we want to say this morning. If the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And we say, God, hallelujah this morning. We are free indeed because of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So now, we're going to flow straight into communion. Terry, if you can bring the mic with you. Trevor, thanks for the musical background. It really was great. Have you all met Lucky? This is Lucky, he's intern over here with us. He's going to be praying this morning as we uh, share communion together. So, 